The views and discussion expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of the hosts of the program, WMKV, Maple Knoll Communities, its staff, or management. The information and advice presented are educational in nature and not intended to be taken as legal, accounting, or other professional advice. Always consult with your own legal, accounting, or other professional before making any investment. Welcome to Real Life Real Estate Investing, a show to help you gain financial freedom by investing in real estate. Brought to you by the Real Estate Investors Association of Cincinnati and the Ohio Real Estate Investors Association. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing on 89.3 FM WMKV. And now your host, Vena Jones-Cox. Good afternoon. I am Vena Jones-Cox, and this is Real Life Real Estate Investing, your nation's public radio source for all the news, advice, tips, and strategies to put you on the path to financial independence through real estate investing. Today's question and answer day, it's the last Wednesday of the month, and this is the day we always open up the mic and the phones for your questions, whether they be about finding deals, property management, finance, flipping, whatever it is you would like to talk about. You can give us a call at 772-9658 if you're in the greater Cincinnati area. If you're listening to us online at wmkvfm.org, you can call us toll-free at 877-772-9658, or you can send us an email with your questions. The email address is askvina at gmail.com. That's A-S-K-V like in Victor, E-N-A at gmail.com. We will be taking questions throughout the hour. However, you do need to remember that uh, many times our emails don't come in for five or 10 minutes. So the earlier, the better. If you have any questions uh, without you, there is no show today. So uh, be sure to give us a call or send us an email. There's some wonderful things coming up in the real estate investing world over the course of the next couple of months, and you can stay up to date on those in two ways. One is that you can uh, go to facebook.com slash real life real estate and fan us. Uh, I guess they don't really do that anymore, but... Um, like the page, and then you will see weekly updates with what's coming up on the program and other things that are going on around the region and around the United States in terms of real estate and real estate education. Uh, If you go there today, there is also a link for you to pick up a free ebook on how to get started in the wholesaling business. So uh, go ahead and fan us up on Facebook. The other way that you can stay informed is that you can go to askvina.com. That's A-S-K-V like in Victor, E-N-A dot com and uh, sign up for our uh, email distribution list. And then you can uh, receive weekly emails that talk about what's happening here at Real Life Real Estate and throughout the rest of the real estate world. That's askvina.com or 
ask uh, or uh, Facebook and go to Real Life Real Estate and fan us. Some of the things that are coming up in the near future are uh, the Ohio Real Estate Investors Association's annual convention. That's going to be November the 8th, 9th, 10th, and 11th here in greater in the greater Cincinnati area um, at the Great Wolf Lodge and Water Park, actually. So a venue where you can bring your kids and set them off to play in the water and you can pack your head with real estate information. This is one of the premier events in the country. It's the only one that I'm aware of that's run by a nonprofit organization, the Ohio Real Estate Investors Association. And uh, you're going to get the chance next week to sign up for that and yet at the same time support public radio. So for right now, mark your calendar. Just cross off November 8th, 9th, 10th, and 11th because you're going to be in Cincinnati listening to 15 expert speakers from all over the United States on topics ranging from how to profit from mobile homes to how to raise money for your real estate business, how to buy self-storage, commercial real estate, creative finance, how to find more deals, how to wholesale, and even more. Next week, tune in and we'll get you a chance to sign up for that at a very special listeners only price. It's question and answer week here at Real Life Real Estate Investing. So uh, that means that uh, we need questions. 772-9658 in the greater Cincinnati area. 877-772-9658 if you're listening to us online or send an email to askvina at gmail.com. A-S-K-V like in Victor E-N-A at gmail.com. Question from Justin, who, oh, and, and incidentally, on that askvina at gmail.com thing, you might want to mention where you're writing from. Uh, Justin, based on his phone number, is from Cincinnati. He says, my question is, what are the advantages of seller financing for the seller? I have heard that there are tax advantages, etc., that would persuade a seller who has no debt on their property to seriously consider seller financing a sale to a new owner, but I can't seem to get a concise list of what those main talking points are so that I can pitch them to sellers in that situation. Also, in regard to seller financing, is there a standard down payment I should expect to pay? Or often can you get these as 100% financed? So just start up with payments after closing. Justin, I love seller financing. It was one of the first things that I did in real estate investing because, uh, A, I was 22 years old and had no uh, credit and didn't have down payments to pay banks. And B, uh, that was, um, now see, I just said how old I was, so now I'm not going to tell you the year. That was at a, that was at a time when interest rates were very, very high. And, uh, even, even, uh, folks who could get bank financing weren't getting bank financing because, uh, it was hard to make properties cash flow at the interest rates that were being asked at the time. And if you are, as I think, in the Cincinnati area, I'd like to remind you that the Real Estate Investors Association of Cincinnati does have a deal maker subgroup now that meets on the fourth Monday of every month. And the topic is creative financing and negotiation and deal making. And if you're as interested in it as I am, you might want to check that out at CincinnatiRia.com. Now, as to your question, there is no standard down payment with seller financing. 
how much of a down payment you might or might not make is going to be negotiated by you and the seller on a per deal basis. Uh, the attitude that I would take, where I you, would be that um, zero is a good place to start. Many times I find in negotiating seller financing that I have to put down at least a small down payment to cover what the seller is going to have to pay at the closing. Things like deed preparation, title search, and so on. And if the seller has no money to bring to the closing, then it might be a $500 or $1,000 down payment uh, just to get him through the closing without taking any money out of his pocket. It is fairly common to negotiate $0 down payments. Now, as to your other question, which are the tax advantages of seller financing, that depends largely on the type of seller financing that we're discussing here because there are many different ways for a seller to convey control of a property to you and they have different tax consequences for the seller. For instance, if you are leasing the property from the seller with an option to buy, you might have, um, you, 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 uh, I'm sorry, I was just hand a note, uh, you're, you really are not buying the property, you are renting the property. So in that case, the seller pays taxes on the monthly rental payments as if they were monthly rental payments. They just happen to be coming from you instead of a tenant. You might find that this creates a tax advantage for certain sellers who absolutely positively do not want to pay capital gains tax because since it is being rented uh, to you instead of sold to you, there are no capital gains taxes due until such time as you exercise the option to buy. So you can get creative with that. You can say to a seller, at what point would you feel comfortable paying capital gains taxes? And uh, an older seller might say, never, I want to die and never pay any capital gains tax. And you say, great, I will get a 20-year option to buy the property. Uh, you are 90, and perhaps uh, by the time I'm able to exercise that option, you will not be around to pay them, and you won't have to worry about them. Uh, in the case of something uh, that is, is typically called seller financing, even though it's one form of seller financing, which is that the seller sells the property to you and takes back payments on a mortgage, the tax advantage that people talk about uh, is that he is able to, t to pay his capital gains taxes using the installment sale treatment rather than all at once. Now, really, that's not a huge advantage. It allows him to pay the capital gains taxes over time instead of all at once as he would with a, a cash sale, but it's not going to be the overall taxes aren't going to be a lot different. So it depends on the kind of financing you're talking about. And by the way, Justin, you never want to tell a seller, oh, you will have the following tax advantages if you do this with me, because what kind of tax advantages he might be able to take, if any, are going to be dependent on his own tax situation. So you can say something like, well, if we do it this way, you can divide up your capital gains over a number of years, assuming that you're not a dealer and some other things, so you need to consult with your own tax professional. Don't, don't give people tax advice because if they make the decision to sell to you that way based on some advice that you've given and then it turns out not to be true, they're going to be angry and potentially litigious. So. 
don't do that. But good question, Justin. Thank you very much. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing. Uh, it's question and answer week. If you have a question that you would like dealt with here on Real Life Real Estate, you can call with it at 772-9658 or 877-772-9658. Or you can send an email to askvina at gmail.com. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. It's question and answer week. So any question you have about real estate investing is um, on the floor as long as you <laughs> tell us what it is. 772-9658 in the greater Cincinnati area. 877-772-9658. If you're listening from someplace out in webland, you can also send an email to askvina at gmail.com. Apparently, I um, I gave out the... Um, I gave out a a, a, a non-approved uh, Facebook page earlier. I said, go over there and like us, and then you'll get information about stuff that's going on. Uh, where you're actually supposed to go is realliferealestateradio.com. Realliferealestateradio.com will take you to our Facebook page. We've got 5,344 likes. I think we should go for 5,350 by the end of the show. Six more by the end of the show, realliferealestateradio.com. You can also listen live streaming to the show with WMKV's app for your phone or tablet by going to realliferealestatemobile.com and downloading the app there. And that way you never have to miss the show. Never, never, never. Let's go to line one and talk to Chris, who's here in Cincinnati. Chris, welcome to Real Life Real Estate. Hey, how you doing, Ms. Vina? Very good, Chris. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Um, I had a question because I'm actually just starting out in real estate. You know, I'm really just getting my feet wet, so just trying to really figure out what direction to go in. And um, I know often I hear the term short sales, and I would just wonder if you can give me some insight as to what that actually is so I can know if I'm just, you know, trying to get as much knowledge as I can. Wow. <laughs> if you'd have if you'd, if you'd, picked a topic that was going to get me up on my soapbox, you couldn't have picked a better one than short sales because, uh, uh, okay, so uh, I'll give you, I'll give you the quick, I'll give you the quick rundown on what a short sale is. And then I'm going to tell you about what some of the challenges are, especially for a brand new investor. Uh, Chris, do you have like a, like a, like a job that you work during the day? Oh, yes. Um, I actually work at um, Millennium Hotel downtown. Okay. Okay. Okay, so here's the deal. Uh, lots of banks have lots of mortgages that are not being paid. And many times the owner who, who, who owes the money cannot just put the property on the market for what they owe and get it sold because the value's dropped or they got a loan that was based on a, uh, an appraisal that wasn't realistic four or five years ago. And the bank has two choices. Because uh, typically the owner is just not going to pay. Uh, choice one is they can take it back in a foreclosure and then acquire it and then sell it as an REO. And statistics show that that costs the bank between thirty and fifty thousand dollars to do. The, the whole process of not getting payments for months and months and months and having to get the force placed insurance and going through the foreclosure and then it's vacant for six months and it gets vandalized and they have to mow the lawn and blah, 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 blah. It's an expensive process for the bank. 
The other choice that they have that they can exercise is they can say to the owner, look, sell it for what you can get, and we will take that, and we will call it even. Now, sometimes they say we'll call it even, and sometimes they say you'll still owe us the rest of the money, but you can pay us over time. Uh, the latter is, of course, a short sale. We are, we are, we are shorting the mortgage uh, because we don't want to go through the process of, of taking the property back and reselling it. Short sales have undergone an interesting evolution over the course of the last 10 years. And uh, er- early on in the foreclosure crisis, which actually, that actually started prior to the bursting of the real estate bubble because there were a lot of subprime loans out there at 12% interest, adjusting every six months, given to people who hadn't really qualified to get them. So there have been, there have been large numbers of foreclosures since before the real estate bubble. But back in the day, it was kind of the Wild West. An investor could often go in and negotiate a, a, a price with a bank that was even lower than current market value, meaning that they could then turn around and rehab it and resell it for a profit or even wholesale it for a profit or hold on to it, rent it. You know, it would be a profitable deal. Well, as time has gone by and banks have gotten more sophisticated about um, understanding what it is the investors are doing and have gotten more uh, determined to squeeze every dime out of a short sale that they possibly can, they have thrown up all sorts of roadblocks to your process of getting the property at a price that you as an investor would be happy with. Now, you as a homeowner, if you were buying a house to live in, you might be able to get a good deal on a property that was a short sale. You might be able to get it at you know, 10 15% off market value. But as an investor, we got to get more than that for the, for the risk that we're taking. We have to get it at more than a 10 or 15% discount. Absolutely. In addition to that, thanks to um, some, how to put this nicely, um, government um, uh, interference in the entire banking market and some bailouts that were done and some rules that were attached to those bailouts, but more importantly, some incentives to the banks that were attached to those bailouts. In about the last two years, short sales have just gotten tough to do, period. The, the amount, of, the amount of, of paperwork that's required, and uh, uh, especially the big lenders, are famous for doing things like uh, they ask you for six documents comprising 25 pages, which you carefully gather together and send to them. And you call two days later and you say, let's talk about the short sale. And they say, we didn't get your documents. And you say, yes, you did. You, you receive, I've got the fax receipt. And they say, sorry, send them again. And you go through that process three or four times. And then you start talking to them about the short sale. And then the loss mitigator you were talking to quits in midstream. And they're just, they're just, they're famous for being a gigantic amount of hassle. Now, are there people making money in the short sale business? Yes, absolutely. Those people in my uh, observation have two things in common right now. Number one, they are dealing with a lot of files. So in other words, they may they may start 50 short sales to end up successfully doing 10. But they've got a they've got a machine in place. You know, they've got the marketing in place. They've got the the paperwork in place. They know what the different banks require. They're they're working it full time. A lot of them have assistants whose job it is to have that conversation over and over and over with the bank about the uh, the paperwork. The other thing that they seem to have in common is they have realtor's licenses. Even the ones who are investors have realtor's licenses. 
and the reason is that of the of the of the ten that they might actually get get accepted by the bank, uh, the um, nine of them they're not getting them down to a price that makes sense to an investor, so they're listing them and selling them to a potential homeowner and earning a commission and maybe a property preservation fee and some some other things that they can add on as an agent that you would have a hard time adding on as an individual. Uh, all the all the statistics are showing that there are there are more short sales being done right now in the, in the sense of, of of every 100 defaulted mortgages how many of them are going through foreclosure and how many of them are being short sold but i think what what those statistics are not showing is how many of those are selling to homeowners versus how many are selling at a price that an investor can't afford to pay. I think the, the banks are more anxious to do short sales, but they like to do them in a particular way with a real estate agent involved and a homeowner buyer at the back end who's paying the top dollar they can get anyway. So here's the other, here's the other thing, Chris. If you said, you know, still I want to make that my specialty. Because I mean, if you make something your specialty and you really learn it and you get the systems in place and you get the the help you need on that, you can make just about any strategy in real estate successful. When you have a full-time job, that's tough because the loss mitigators are available 9 a.m. to 5 p.m., Monday through Friday. And when they call, if you, when you finally get a call back <laughs> to schedule, to schedule a, a, a price opinion so that you can move forward with a short sale, you better be able to answer that phone because my, my experience is that if they leave a message, you'll call back five times and leave five messages and you'll play phone tag forever. So my opinion, and it is my opinion, is that as a new investor who needs to get a deal done so that he can put a check in his pocket so that he can say, see, this works, short sales are probably not the thing for you to pursue first. Okay, now, so mind you ask if I have time, uh, what would you suggest? Uh, it depends on what your sort of immediate long-term goals are, and it also depends on what your resources look like. So uh, is the most important thing to get some cash built up? Is the most important thing to start working on long-term wealth and income? Is it is it retirement plan? What What is going to be the thing the num the number one thing i would say probably between cash build up and long term you know wealth um of course you know i would like some cash now but i've been sacrificing a lot of things you know like going to school and things instead of um work i just started working so um i would probably say long term wealth overall okay well your your long term wealth strategies are going to be things like lease optioning uh owning rental properties uh, think things right, where you're right. going to that's be what I was thinking about as well as like rental properties that was one yeah. area I was really interested in mhm mm mhm yeah well that's it. you can absolutely buy rental properties very very cheaply right now and, the, and 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 get high cash flow from them the next question would be do you have the the, do you have the background or the people in your life to renovate rentals? Because that would be, you know, it's it's one strategy to go out and buy something that needs work, buy really cheap, fix it up, get some equity that way, and then rent it. And it's another thing to look for a property that maybe doesn't need that much, 
work. You could go in on the weekend and paint it, and it's ready to rent. Uh, are you, how are you going to finance that? Uh, if you if you are if you are just now uh, out of school and starting to work, the chances that you'll be qualified for Fannie Mae financing are probably pretty slim. So you would need to be looking at private financing or partners or some sort of creative finance. There's there's a lot of there's a lot of little pieces that go into this decision of what works for me. I mean, I you can line up 50 investors against the wall, and and I can talk to them each about what you know, we're all new investors what what should we do and i you might get 50 different answers depending on these other questions so what i would do chris first of all have you joined cincinnati ria actually um i just ran into a member i said about a week ago and that's actually that's how i got the information it was my first time listening to the show <laughs> and um i'm actually in the process of trying to join uh, cincinnati ria now okay well there's a meeting a week from tomorrow uh, and it's a good one. Uh, we've got a national expert in from St. Louis, so that'll be fun. He's going to be talking about, he's actually going to be talking about, get this, how to buy rentals without getting mortgages. So that'd be a good topic for you. Uh, you can go to CincinnatiRia.com. If you just show up there and, you know, say I'm a guest, I'm first time, uh, there's no fee the first time you come. And then there will be a little uh, guest orientation there at the meeting and you can sign up then. So do that. That's number one. That'll start to give you sort of a look at what is possible. The other thing you need to do is 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 sit down and and I'm not going to tell you I'm not going to tell you to quote write goals. What I'm going to tell you is make a list of these are the resources I have. Here's uh, I, I'm here's skills I have. Here's money I have access to or that people I know have access to. Uh, here here are the areas that are like close to me that I would like to own rentals in. Uh, and here is how much cash flow I would like to get for my rentals. I'd like to, I'd like to have the first one I get, I'd like to have $200 a month in cash flow or $300 a month in cash flow after all my bills, whatever the case may be, because clarifying that for yourself will make it clearer as you're hearing about different strategies, which one is going to be right for you. Okay. Does that make sense? Yes, ma'am. Absolutely. Okay, but first, first step for anyone who's listening and is in in the same situation uh, is going to be join your local real estate association because until you know what's out there, until you know what's working and what people are doing, and 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 you have those people around you to be able to go in and say, so what do you think of this block of this street? <laughs> right? Uh, it's tough to it's tough to especially as a new investor. Uh, to quickly get answers to questions that you're going to have when you belong to a group that size, there's always somebody to ask. Okay, well, uh, thank you for your time. It's been, it's been a pleasure listening. I'm going to continue to listen to it at least till 6 o'clock. And um, I just thank you uh, for getting me started. Oh, wonderful. I appreciate it, Chris, and I will see you at Cincinnati Rea next week. All right, see you then. Thanks for calling. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing. It's question and answer week. Give us a call at 772-9658 in the greater Cincinnati area or call us toll free at 877-772-9658 or send an email to askvina at gmail.com. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. My name is Vina Jones-Cox. I am, as almost always, your host here on Real Life Real Estate. This is Question and Answer Week, which is what we do every last Wednesday of the month, at least mostly. We're a little inconsistent here, aren't we? (laughs) 
and Mike is almost always your engineer. <laughs> In any case, today is question and answer day on Real Life Real Estate. You can uh, give us a call at 772-9658. You can call us toll free if you're listening from outside the greater Cincinnati area at 877-772-9658. And uh, you can also send us an email, askvina at gmail.com. I uh, got three emails here in a row from Ka in Memphis, Tennessee, and they're all sort of related. I think she, he, she was thinking of more questions as he, she went along. Uh, I'm buying my first rental investment property in Memphis. Can you tell me all the out clauses, contingency clauses I need to put into the contract? I currently have only mortgage and home inspection clauses in there. I'm sure there are more. Uh, actually, if you have a financing clause that says, if I can't get my financing, if I can't get this financing, I'm not going to buy the house. And an inspection clause that says, if I don't like the condition after having sent an inspector in, I'm not buying the house. Uh, those are the two most common clauses. Now, you might want to make sure that you also have uh, sometimes home inspection clauses the wording of them does not include pest inspections and it does not sometimes does not include other uh, environmental type inspections so like if, if radon's a big deal in Memphis you might have a clause in there for radon inspection you're almost certainly going to want one for termites and other wood destroying pests next question was the turnkey seller so this is a, quote, turnkey rental, is providing me the home inspection report and post-renovation home inspection report. Do you still recommend that I send in my own inspector and spend the additional $200? Yes, absolutely. No question about it. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes, I do. Um, I do not know from whom you are buying this house, but uh, turnkey, there are some sellers of turnkey properties out there who and and I shouldn't pick on them I suppose there's probably sellers of all sorts of investment properties out there who they have an inspector in their back pocket and they tell the inspector what to say and they say it I would absolutely get my own inspection and now that you have told me that it is a turnkey rental the other thing that I would recommend that you have in your lease or in your um in your contract is a clause saying that you get to review the lease on the property. If it's a turnkey rental, it probably has a tenant in it. You want to review the lease. You want to review the tenant's application form. Because another thing that sometimes happens in turnkey rentals is that the seller puts in the first tenant who will sign the lease, despite the fact that they cannot actually pay for the property in the long term and two months later they call you and say oops it went vacant sorry we're going to have to re-rent it oh and by the way we're going to have to re-rent it at less money because um, we can't get this for it I would also say check your local Craigslist and look for what properties are renting for in that area and if the number that you're being given is significantly higher than what seems to be market rent for the area uh, you should be careful uh, you, I gather that you live in Memphis as well as are buying this turnkey rental in Memphis. So perhaps you are already familiar with the rents and they do look reasonable, but, uh, here, here's, here's the thing. A seller of a turnkey rental is not representing you, but what, whatever, whatever they may be saying about, we're very 
customer service oriented and so on. Bottom line is the way they're making their money is by selling you the property at a price higher than what they paid for it. There is nothing wrong with selling you a property at the pri- at a price higher than they paid for it. However, um, their interests are different than your interest in this case. Your interest is to make sure that you're getting a property that does not need any major work and will not need any major work for the next five to 10 years. Yes, you'll have to replace the carpet when the tenant moves. Yes, it'll have to be painted. Yes, there will be little maintenance issues. But 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 you want to know that this property it doesn't have a 28-year-old roof on it and doesn't have a furnace that's 50 years old and is likely to conk out in the middle of the winter next winter. Your interest is in making sure that the tenant who's living there has been appropriately screened. Your interest is in making sure that that uh, the lease is 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 as it is represented. Their interest is in selling you a property. Again, not saying there's anything wrong with that. I'm saying that too many turnkey rental buyers they don't do enough of their own research. They they they're they're buying turnkey because they want to be hands off, but. But the buying process is not the time to be hands off. The buying process is the time to pick this thing apart and make sure you're going to be happy with it over the long term. Thank you very much for your emails, Ka. It's question and answer week on real life real estate. Uh, Next question is from Jane in northern Kentucky who says, I am in and out of the northern Kentucky area and want to rehab as my children and it rehab as my children and a couple of rentals are located in the Kenton and Campbell counties. Ah, okay. I have been having very little success locating a hard money lender. We have good credit and good income and most importantly experience. I hope you can shed some light on this. I'm in a joint venture with a couple of your RIA members in Cincinnati, but they haven't sent me any lenders as they say, Kentucky is hard to find any. Um, Jane, uh, there are hard money lenders that will lend in Kentucky. I think that the problem that you're running across here is that some of the best known, let's call them institutional hard money lenders, they are set up as hard money lenders. They have companies they advertise. Uh, Yes, they limit themselves to Ohio because they are in Ohio. That doesn't mean there aren't any hard money lenders in Kentucky. And in fact, in some ways, Northern Kentucky is a better market than the greater Cincinnati area and, and, and Ohio in general. Uh, two things I would recommend. One is check out a couple of the RIA groups that are in Kentucky, such as Kentuckiana RIA, which is another uh, nonprofit group based in Louisville, uh, GL RIA, Greater Lexington RIA. Those folks probably can, can just give you names of people who might be hard money lenders in Kentucky. The other thing that I would say is uh, I'm not sure why you're particularly interested in hard money lenders as opposed to private lenders, because I'm sure there are people around Cincinnati area and also around just you and around Northern Kentucky that would love to invest their own private money at uh, lower costs than a hard money lender would charge. Uh, yeah, hard money lenders are just, uh, there, there are a lot fewer of them right now than there were 10 years ago for reasons that I think are probably obvious. And unfortunately, I cannot give you any names out over the air, but I will tell you that if I, uh, if some jump to mind after I look at my contact database, I will email you back uh, some potential names of hard money lenders. The other thing you need to know, it, 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 I, I gather 
that what you're looking for is to rehab and resell. And so you would be buying properties in more retail type neighborhoods, more bread and butter type neighborhoods. And those are the kinds of neighborhoods that hard money lenders are lending in right now. Uh, if you're looking to rehab for rental in areas that are mostly rental areas, uh, you're going to have a super hard time finding a hard money lender who will do that because since your exit strategy is not to resell it, they question if you are going to have an exit for it. In other words, 18 months from now, your hard money money loan is up. What are you going to do? How are you going to pay off that loan? A question from the askvina.com contact form. And somehow somebody got managed to send me a question without giving either their name or their location. And um, I thought you had to fill that in in order to send anything through the askvina.com contact form. But apparently I was wrong. Uh, but the question is, do you recommend doing wholesaling in my local market only? Or can I do it anywhere in the U.S. using your system? Per some gurus, a cell phone, laptop, and internet connection is all you need. True? No mystery person. False. A laptop, cell phone, and internet connection uh, is all you need to spend uh, or waste a lot of time on deals that you will try to wholesale but will never close. The reality is, in order to wholesale properties, you need a motivated seller. You need a good evaluation of the property, which you cannot do via cell phone or on the internet. You must actually have someone go into the property and analyze the repair costs. And you must have buyers for that property, uh, which are a lot easier to get if you are in the area. It is possible to get them if you're not in the area, but it's much more difficult. Uh, in a few weeks, we are going to have a guest. So write this down, whoever you are. We are going to have a guest that you need to make sure that you are listening on that show. His name is Larry Goins, and he has an approach to this virtual wholesaling thing where he will say to you, you must have people on the ground and you must have people on the ground that, that are competent and that you trust. You can't just pick up the phone and call any random real estate agent out of the phone book or Google, I guess, would be the modern way to do that, uh, and send them to a property and say, how much will it cost to fix it? You, you, you have to have someone who actually knows what repair costs are like, who are actually going to go to the property and look at it, not just tell you they did. Uh, there, there's much more to it than the laptop, the cell phone, and the internet connection. And it drives me crazy when folks are out there saying, oh yeah, sure, you can wholesale properties all the way across the country. It's no problem. You just push a button on your computer and it all happens for you. The other question that I always ask people who come with this sort of question about can I wholesale in places other than where I am is why would you want to? What is the matter with your market? Why do you think the grass is greener on the other side of the fence? And the answer I usually get is, oh, well, properties are really expensive in my area. Well, that means that you can make more money because if you are selling a property at 70 cents on the dollar in a $300,000 market, as opposed to a $30,000 market, there's more money there for you to get. Or I hear, oh, there's too much competition in my area. You do realize that 
every real estate investor on the planet thinks that they live in the most highly competitive region of the United States, including me, I believe that Cincinnati is the most highly competitive region in the United States. It's just competition is truly not a factor if you know what you're doing. Thank you for your question, mystery person. Anyone else who might be uh, sending a question through the askvina.com response form, please do fill in the part that says who you are and where you're from. Like Steph from Boston, Massachusetts did. Steph says, love your show. Do you need two separate LLCs when you do rehabs and also rentals? It is almost $600 to set up an LLC in Massachusetts before the legal fees. Do you need a third LLC if you also wholesale? Thanks. Uh, well, Steph, all right, I'm going, to, I'm going to start with the usual disclaimer. I am not an attorney. I'm not an accountant. I don't know your particular tax situation. But I can tell you that the recommendations that we generally hear from attorneys here on Real Life Real Estate and from folks out in the real estate world is that you're going to want to have two different entities when your exit strategies are buy and hold in one and buy and immediately or, or close to immediately resell in the other. The reason has to do with dealer status, has to do with a tax status called dealer status. If you are a dealer, you know, it sounds terrible. Boy, we're talking about dealers. We're talking about rehab. What kind of show is this? If you have dealer status, what that means is that the IRS has determined that you are a person who ha runs a business that uses real estate as inventory. You buy it and you sell it, or you buy it and you renovate it and you sell it. Dealers are subject to a different, whole different set of tax rules than true real estate investors. In other words, the people who buy and hold real estate. For instance, if you are, uh, when you pay taxes on the profits from dealer properties, it's not a capital gains tax, which is a nice flat, fairly low tax. It's income tax. Did I do that? <laughs> uh, it's, it's income tax. So in other words, you're going to pay taxes in whatever your current tax bracket is at the time at which you sell that property. Plus you're going to pay self-employment tax. You can't do 1031 exchanges. There's certain uh, there's certain tax advantages you cannot take as a dealer. So the reason that you're going to hear people say, get one LLC for your dealer properties and a different LLC for your rental properties is you don't want those rental properties mixed up with the dealer properties. You want the one entity to be the dealer and yes, deal with the fact that you're going to have to pay more tax on those properties and the other entity to be the investment entity. The investment entity can do all the things that investors do, like do 1031 exchanges on properties when you sell them. The dealer, uh, the dealer entity, you can't. Now, LLCs are usually the recommended entity. There are going to be exceptions. I've, I've heard attorneys tell people in your situation, the best thing is a limited partnership or occasionally uh, in your situation, the best thing is an S corporation or if you're making a whole lot of money, even a C corporation. So I'm not, I'm not speaking to whether the LLC is the better thing. I'm speaking to why people recommend two separate entities. 
I know it's expensive, but I have a feeling, Steph, that if you sat down with your tax professional and looked at the difference between having all those properties together and having the rental properties in their own separate entity, that it's probably going to turn out to save you more than $600 to have the two entities. So thank you for your question. We have uh, time, I think, for just one more quick question. And uh, just saw one here. Where did it go? There was an interesting question here about someone who died and left the property to their bank. <laughs> Where did it go? It so good. Ah, here we go. This is from David from Maryland. And David from Maryland says, my friend's aunt recently passed. Her property was upside down. In other words, she owed more on it than it was worth. And she made an agreement with the lender to pay 65% of her mortgage payment. In her will, she gave the property back to the lender. Is there anything at all that can be done to gain or assume control of the property? We want to make an offer on the property. Boy, that was a that was a super interesting question, David, because what what I what I would wonder is does the lender know that she left the property to the lender? In other words, was that something that they asked for? Because just because someone leaves you something in their will doesn't mean you have to take it. And the lender may very well prefer even though they've got the ability to get the quit claim deed here from the executor, they may actually prefer to get money from you, even if it was less than what was owed, rather than go through the whole process and, you know, take the property back and maybe have it lose value because it sits there a while and it gets vandalized and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So long story short, um, the lender can... The lender can take offers and the executor, you, you would make the offer to the executor of the will and the lender, I assume at this point, knows that he's that it has been left a property in a will. Again, very unusual. Uh, make an offer. Go to the executor and say, I, I understand what's happened here. We feel that it's possible that the bank may not take the deed to the house, even though it was left to them. And there would be various reasons for that. The title issues, just don't want to, etc. We would like to make an offer and we would like you to present that offer and then see what happens. And the executor can do all the things that the owner could have done in the way of a short sale. So uh, thank you for that question, David. Uh, we are out of time. We appreciate all the folks who helped today with question and answer. We great questions, ladies and gentlemen, be back next week. We'll talk to, talk to you about how to get into the Ohio Real Estate Investors Association annual convention at a listener-only special price and support public radio at the same time. We'll be back next week. Until then, happy investing. Happy investing.